Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you all here. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon, which is privileged to offer these uh, regular events throughout the year. Um, I do want to say a special thanks to all of you for coming out on what is obviously a very snowy night. I hope the drive here wasn't too terrible. Uh, we did send a note out uh, earlier today indicating that we were going to be holding this, and we included in that note um, uh, a link to the live stream of this, and we heard back immediately from a whole lot of people who said thank you for offering the live stream. Um, I'm going to be tuning into that. So to those of you who are participating virtually, uh, welcome to you as well. Um, I always like to ask, I know it's a slightly smaller crowd tonight because of the weather, but uh, is anyone here for the first time to a Faith in Life event? Oh, okay, a handful of you, good, excellent. Special welcome to you. Um, we're glad you came out. Uh, this is the 16th year of these events, and uh, over those 16 years, we have invited um, a whole lot of different types of people to come and talk to us about how Christian faith uh, connects to different dimensions of everyday life. That has included authors, historians, bloggers, uh, some theologians, although not many actually, uh, but we have had uh, I would call it a critical mass of folks who have talked about faith and science. Uh, in fact, from the very first year of the series, if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to go back and look, we had a nuclear particle physicist come and discuss faith and science. So we're delighted to continue uh, that tradition tonight. Um, you can read about our speaker's bio in your program. I will tell you briefly, uh, he grew up in India, where he did his undergraduate work. He went on to Germany, where he did a whole lot of graduate work. Uh, he was hired by the Vatican Observatory and has been here in the States for the last year and a half or so, uh, doing uh, postdoctoral research and fellowship at the University of uh, Michigan. Uh, I spent a little time with him today, and one of the things I always like to ask our speakers is, is there something sort of off the beaten path uh, that isn't in your official biography that people might want to know about, and his response was, no, I'm really not that interesting, actually. <laughs> I don't have any special skills or abilities other than being an astronomer who works at the Vatican Observatory. Uh, anyway, we are delighted to welcome him tonight. I will say he has particularly good taste in sweaters and in collars. <laughs> will you join me in welcoming Richard D'Souza? Thank you. Thank you all for coming out here and braving the cold. Um, it's been a really snowy day. So I'm going to talk to you today about, um, about my experience and about a central question which perhaps some of you or most of you uh, are perplexed about, especially a question which is very relevant in our modern age. And the question is this, how is it possible to reconcile the world of science with our inner life of faith. Some of you may be um, active people of faith, people who are active here in this congregation or brought up in a particular religious tradition, or some of you may just be just curious. I think we can all, uh, we, we can all agree that all of us have, in some way or the other, have had a spiritual or an existential moment uh, when we perhaps have a beautiful scene in front of us, or when we are confronted with life's tragedies or life's wonders, 
And we begin asking questions about the meaning of life. So all of us have had spiritual moments. But yet in a world which we live today, we find it very difficult to really talk about this inner faith life of ours in a world which is very secular, and especially in a world which is very scientific. There seems to be a deep divide between the two. And even for us people who are active practitioners of our faith, it's sometimes difficult to talk about it to a secular crowd. And me, who, has, who was often also a, a professional astronomer, I sometimes often struggle with talking about my faith to my professional colleagues, my fellow astronomers. We seem to be living in this divide of the world. And I think that is really the biggest challenge which affects our faith lives and it's the question which I would like to address tonight. Now, as a Jesuit priest and a person of faith and a professional astronomer, I study galaxies for a living. I mean, I try to understand how they form and evolve right from the Big Bang to the present days as they are today to try and understand how the Milky Way came to be and how we are just one among the billion of stars in the Milky Way. Now, in spite of all these studies, I do not think I have any special insights into the nature of God. Neither have I seen God through the telescope. But what I may be able to offer you tonight is I may be able to show you a way in which I combine my faith life with my professional scientific career. I am a person of faith and I love the science I do. I love figuring out why the galaxies form and how they work and what causes their diversity. And I often love a good challenge and even trying to race towards that prize to publish in nature or science. And I often find that my faith often helps me to do good science. And my science, the more I think about it, sometimes even deepens my faith. I often wonder when I, when I do have the luxury of sitting back and actually looking at the night sky, not for the reasons of work, but just to enjoy it, I somehow look at, look at it and look at the stars and the galaxies and I wonder, wow, what a marvelous creator we have. And then suddenly I realize that my work is knowing more about the God who created the universe and is in some way an act of worship in itself. So the challenge I'm trying to set up for myself today is to try and convert this experience of mine in moving from faith to science and back to faith to make it an experience which is accessible to everybody so that people can move from their inner faith lives to their outer professional lives and switch back, back and forth and not be left with a very compartmentalized view of reality, as it were. Now, at first glance, um, it may seem, in spite of all the progress we have made in the last few years and decades in understanding um, 
religion and science and the philosophies of science and religion in academic circles, it still seems to be very difficult to connect these two worlds. I think the reason this happens is because we are all influenced under a very dominant narrative, a dominant paradigm as it were, which suggests to us that faith and science cannot go hand in hand. We live within this narrative and we live and our lives are shaped by this paradigm. And therefore, this paradigm tells us that in fact the two cannot go hand in hand. Religion and science cannot go hand in hand. And this paradigm is reinforced by the stories we tell ourselves. The stories we keep telling ourselves, society tells us. And perhaps the, param the, the biggest of these stories is the 16th century story of Galileo and the church. And by telling and retelling that story, it gets solidified into a paradigm which shapes our lives. And the story reinforces the idea that religion and science cannot go hand in hand. When they do mix, they will necessarily clash. Now I think it is obvious to all of us that it is very difficult to change the dominant paradigm or narrative. It is really hard. They are ingrained in ourselves, in our lives and in society. And it's important to realize the power of paradigms, the power of narratives, the power of stories. Because these things affect how we relate uh, with, with the world, with each other, and with God. Stories are powerful. In our own faith traditions, we constantly tell stories. We try to tell stories to teach, to create meaning, so that we can be able to relate to the world. Stories and meaning creation are an important dimension of us human beings because they help us to navigate the complexities of life and the world. And so therefore we need to start examining the stories we tell ourselves and this grand narrative which we live under. I think we can take a step back and just for a brief moment try and examine the Galileo story for a brief moment of a time. Um, but there's much that really can be said about the Galileo story and how the church clashed with Galileo. It is, and I must say, it is an active area of research. People still are trying to understand, historians and philosophers of science are really trying to understand all the complexities that actually happened at the time of Galileo and his interaction with the church. But there are so many elements in that story which really do not add up to the paradigm which we live out in our lives. And let me point out some of these very interesting facts. For instance, I would say that I think Galileo was someone who never intended at the end of his life to ever have a rift with religion or with his church. He never really meant to show that science and religion can go, do not go together. In fact, what he was trying to show that his science was compatible with his religion. And he remained a good Christian till the end of his life. His two daughters, as you may know, were nuns. 
and they actually took care of him till his old age. Uh, but there's also this interesting question um, about the question of the interpretation of scripture. And it was a very turbulent time. It was the time of the Reformation when the question of interpretation was paramount in, in the church's mind. And therefore, it really, it really doesn't add up to the fact that Galileo wanted a rift between science and religion. But what I find is the most interesting part of the fact is that the story of Galileo was practically unknown and unheard of till the 19th century. It's only in the 19th and the 20th century when the rise of anti-clericalism and there's this rise of, after the French Revolution, the rise of the secular world, that people started going back to a story nearly two to three centuries earlier, to the 16th century, and started retelling that tale in order to suggest that science and religion will not go hand in hand, until that tale became the dominant paradigm we live today. Stories are powerful, and the stories we tell ourselves shapes the way we look at reality. But there is also ample evidence from elsewhere that science and religion can go hand in hand. There are a number of religious people in the course of world history who have done tremendous contributions to science. I can start listing a whole bunch of clerics in all Christian traditions who did major achievements to the science. And I'm going to just pick one for tonight and that is perhaps someone who is not very well known among the, among the Christian community. And he is a, a Belgian priest by the name of Father George Lemaitre. Now, Father George Lemaitre lived, um, lived in the early part of the last century, and he was a contemporary of Einstein. Uh, he studied mathematics, and when Einstein published his equations um, about general relativity, um, Lemaitre took those equations and tried to apply it to the universe and to say, what does it tell us about the universe? Um, and then he came up with the idea that, hey, if you apply Einstein's equations to the universe, it does show that the universe is expanding. And if you would extrapolate it back, then if it's expanding, then it comes back from a single point. That means the universe started from a point and it's expanding. So you can see its expansion, but if you extrapolate backwards in time, it starts from a single point. And he was confused at this, and he called it the primeval point. But that's the basis of a theory which we know today called as the Big Bang. The Big Bang is a very, I would like to say, Christian or even Catholic idea it is formulated by a Christian priest. Um, so much so that this year, the International Astronomical Union, which was held in Vienna, came, um, has finally recognized the contribution of Father George Lemaitre and um, in, has renamed a very famous law in astronomy, which was previously known as the Hubble Law, the Hubble Law of Expansion of Galaxies on the Universe, to the Hubble-Lemaitre law, and this was done this year. 
a remarkable man, great contributions to science and astronomy. The reason why I'm telling you his story is to show you that science and religion can go hand in hand. And sometimes people's religious faiths can help them in their science and, like, and vice versa. Now as a Jesuit priest and an astronomer, I do not experience in any way a conflict between my religion and my science. And I think I'm not alone with this, there are a couple of other people I know and I work with fellow astronomers who are ways Christians, uh, believers in their own respective faith traditions. And we often share our own experiences and exchange with each other knowing uh, that we are people of faith talk about and share about our, how we integrate our science and our religion. But uh, when I tell the general public about this, it surprises them, even though, even though you have so many of these examples in history. Um, and the question comes, therefore, why are they still surprised? Perhaps not the general public is not really educated in philosophical traditions, the analytical traditions which will help us to really examine the paradigms and the dominant narratives we have in our lives. But sometimes I even think so, even after, even if people who are educated in, 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 in philosophy and can do these analytical, critical thinkings about their own narratives, while they do know it in their heads intellectually that there is no division, there can be no separation between science and religion, yet when we actually practically live out our lives in the world, we often hesitate to mix them and we try to keep them separate for our own sort of professional well-being and to show that, and some say, that we may be believable by our own colleagues. Narratives and paradigms have an important effect in our lives and they are deep-seated. And the only way then to, to change this situation is to change the paradigm and the narrative we tell ourselves. Now the hist history has ever taught us something in the long scheme of things, it has taught us that paradigms are resistant to change, but very often they do change. They are resistant to change, but they do change. And this is an idea which has been proposed in many circles, in the philosophy of science by Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher, that the paradigm continues for some time, but ever so often it flips over. Like in a long time we believed in Newton, and then we flipped over to believe Einstein. And maybe in a few years we may flip over to another paradigm and another theory. And therefore, what we need, therefore, is another narrative, another story we can tell ourselves. I have really long sought after such a narrative. What story could I tell myself and tell any, everyone which would help me to integrate my science and my religion and not only include all the knowledge I have about the universe, but really to incorporate the experiences I have in the research I do. How I go about it, how do I start thinking about a problem, 
How do I actually have difficulties in my research? And how is it so closely related to the struggles I often have in my faith life, trying to go around the complexities of, of life? And after long searching, I think I may have a story to tell you tonight. It's a narrative which we are all familiar with, a story which we all know. But I'm going to try and retell a very familiar story in a way that will help us to understand how faith and science can go hand in hand. It's the story of, found in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the story of the three magi. Now you say, oh, we know that story. It's so easy. I mean, there's three wise men just walking aimlessly in the desert for so long, looking for a star and finally finding a child. But bear with me for a moment. Let me reflect with you on these, really on this story a bit deeper of these three wise men. Now these three wise men, as reported to us by the Gospel of Matthew, were stargazers, people of philosophy and science. They were seekers after a truth greater than themselves, and they went through great efforts to find it. So in retelling their story, what I would like to do is, to, is, is really to construct a narrative which will then upset the dominant narrative as we see today. And in, in retelling this story, I want to incorporate my own experiences of how I go about in my scientific research, as well as how the struggles I have as I go about living my faith here on, on, in the world. But in order to understand really the story of the Magi, I think we need to take a step back and go to our own experiences. And if I'm going to pose to you this question, have any of you looked up at the night sky and seen a beautiful image of a galaxy or a nebula through a telescope? or in some of the planets you can see through the telescope. And if you have done so, you will be always amazed with wonder as how these things are. Sometimes the Hubble Space Telescope and NASA shows us these images of distant galaxies and we go like, wow, that's really beautiful. Now in my long training as a Jesuit priest, I had an opportunity to work in often in very remote locations uh, and among many underprivileged people. So whether you are a, a kid in India, in a remote village in India, or a teenager in, in, in Africa, or maybe even a professor at the University of Michigan, if any of us would look through the night, uh, to the telescope in the night sky, you will all go, wow. For a brief moment, all of us, there's something deep within each one of us which just lights up for a moment. This is a universal human experience. Why is this so? And what does this tell us about ourselves? What is there which deep within each one of us which makes us wonder at the cosmos and the heavens? And why has there been constantly this fascination for astronomy and the cosmos down the centuries. I think we can understand this fascination if we begin to understand ourselves a bit more deeper. 
And this goes back to a Christian anthropology where we believe that we are transcendental creatures. And what do I mean by this, by transcendental creatures, is that we hear, there's something deep within each one of us which yearns to go beyond himself or herself to reach towards the beyond. Something within us which makes us yearn to go beyond our physical boundaries, to start imagining and thinking about not just what is in our physical proximity, but to imagine worlds and futures and dreams. This is what we call as the transcendental nature of the human person. The best way I like to visualize this is through a painting which perhaps all of you know about. It's the painting of Michelangelo, of Adam and God and the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And all of you have definitely seen that painting. And it's a painting of actually God creating Adam, reaching out to him with their fingers touching. But there's another way to look at that painting. And that other way of looking at that painting is Adam reaching out towards the infinite, reaching out beyond him towards God. So what the painting and what Michelangelo really understood in painting it in that way is that not only is God creating Adam in a particular way, but that Adam is special, Adam and Eve, sorry, Adam and Eve are special among all creatures. And there's something ingrained with us human beings which makes us yearn for the infinite, for the beyond. This is what makes us human. We are transcendental beings, different from all the other animals. And if you begin to, if you begin to look at this, then you realize that all human activity is only an expression of this search for the transcendent. So whatever we go about in our lives, in our physical lives, in our professional lives, is really an expression of this search for the transcendent. We are journeying towards God, reaching out to beyond Him, and everything we do in our professional lives, whether it be poetry, or something creative like music, or searching for the latest cures of certain illnesses, medicine, or trying to solve world problems through engineering. All of these are something, there's something transcendental in them. And they are therefore, everything we do professionally is an expression of this transcendental search of the human person. And ultimately, we reach a journey towards God. I like this way of looking at things because it suggests to me that there can be no divide between our professional lives and our inner yearning towards God. And in fact, our professional lives and what we do out there with our families and professionally is all an expression of this inner search of the human person. There can be no separation between our secular lives and the lives of faith which we live. And furthermore, as I like to tell young people, the better you are in your professional lives, the more you come closer towards that transcendental search. 
you, you are being more transcendental, journeying towards the divine. Now let me take a step back and, and propose this. There is nothing more transcendental yet physical than the heavens. There is nothing more transcendental out there and yet more physical than the heavens. It's the furthest we can possible reach. And therefore, the heavens always have this great, we have this great fascination for the heavens. We always go, wow, when we see the heavens, when we wonder at it, because that is giving in to that transcendental search, a yearning deep within each one of us. I like to put it that the Magi then, who were looking for this star and journeying towards finding what the star meant for them, were in some sense, they are a deepest reflection of our very selves, of all the searching we do in our lives, both in our professional lives as well in our inner faith lives. And their fascination for astronomy speaks to us about our fascination of astronomy down the centuries and the fascination for astronomy in all civilizations and cultures and perhaps even all religions. If you think of world history and its fascination for astronomy, I think in the, in, the Western, in the Western world, there has been no patron which has supported astronomy more than the, than the churches. Uh, and the reason for this is often because, well, they actually were not so much interested in the sciences. They were really interested, they were interested, but not really so much. For them, it was really fixing the date of Easter and reforming the calendar, especially in the, in the years when there was the grad the great expansion from Europe to the New World. You just couldn't phone up the people in, um, in South America or in India and tell them, this year Easter is on the 5th of, of April. So you just really had to have that predefined. And therefore the, the, the churches, the popes, put great effort to reform the calendar, study the heavens and try and fix the date of Easter for the next 2000 years. Um, but even within, outside the calendar, people were already interested in astronomy. A lot of clerics did great work uh, in, in astronomy. But you can see also this fascination in other cultures, the Mayans, the Chinese, the Indians, the Arabians. All of them looked up at the night sky and wondered and tried to calculate things and tried to understand when would the next comet appear and why one has and predict the next eclipse. All great civilizations have rappled with astronomy. And it actually points us to the fact that human beings are constantly fascinated with it. And they are constantly fascinated, ultimately, because it is the most transcendental thing you can physically do. The first among the physical sciences to be established into departments in universities was that of astronomy. The first astronomy, first department at the University of Michigan in the sciences was the department of astronomy. 
I'm sure pretty much in Minnesota or the University of Minnesota or which of all these professional universities in, the, in, in this part of the country it was also quite similar. So now we understand why astronomy fascinated people down the centuries and why then then the Magi in some ways are a deepest reflection of ourselves. They reflect our fascination for astronomy down the centuries but they also reflect our own professional searches in yearning for the infinite. But let me dwell deeper into the story a bit more of the Magi and ask the question which is, why did the Magi set out on their search? And the reason I'm asking this question is because then I would like to reflect back on our own faith lives and our own scientific uh, and our own professional lives. Let's start this question. Why did the Magi set out from their homes? Why did they leave the comforts of perhaps their Persian palaces and ride a camel uh, through the desert for I don't know, how many months, forsaking comforts, forsaking servants, just to look for the star? And in the same way, why do we in our own way do so much in our professional lives? What makes us go forward? I think the answer for this is again by reflecting on our own human experience. And I think the answer lies in our search for meaning. In many ways, our search for the transcendental, and our yearning for the transcendental, is actually a search for meaning. Now, ever since the, the famous psychologist Viktor Frankl coined the term meaning, we humans are meaning-seeking animals, the psychologists as well as scientists have realized that we are far from just being rational beings. If at all, we are at all not rational beings. We never really think out rationally. In our life. And most of our great life decisions are never about the best reasons for doing so. In fact, major of your life uh, many of the things we do in life, whether it be choosing a life vocation or choosing a life partner, are not really rational decisions we make. But often they are decisions which are made to search because we are searching for meaning. And we find something is meaningful for us. And then we make that decision based on this meaning. Without meaning, we human beings would never move forward in life. And we know this because for people who have lost all meaning, we know that they come to a standstill. They're almost like dead. And in the extreme form, they actually take their lives. People who have no meaning in life. Meaning is essential for us moving forward. And let me take a step back and take a cue from philosophy. And we know from philosophy, especially from this great philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who suggested that to us that meaning cannot be found within a system. Meaning is only found outside a system. Let me unpack this with you for a moment. If any of you play board games, and many of you do, you will realize that a board game is basically a collection of rules in how we engage ourselves in a particular game. We roll the dice, we can, do, we can do these things and we can do that things. And these are set by a bunch of rules. Uh, but then you can ask the question, why are you playing the game? What is it within the game that you want? 
And generally, you realize that you actually play the game not because of something within the game, but often because of a prize which is outside the game, a prize of a greater value outside the game. In a simple way, it helps us, this illustration helps us to understand how we find meaning. Meaning cannot be found within a physical system. Meaning is only found by something which is transcendent to the system, something which is outside the system. In a similar way, as much as um, we go about looking for meaning in life, we will never find that meaning in something which is very physical to us. It's always found in, some, in something which is beyond, a prize, or something which we do not achieve. Uh, think of your own experience in how you go about various projects in your life. You yearn for something, and you yearn for a particular project, that gives you meaning for a brief moment of time. Uh, you do that project and you finish it up and then suddenly it fails to give you any more meaning. And then you look for something again, beyond, something new, a new project to start. And this is how meaning shapes our lives. And we our lives are a search for meaning and meaning helps us to go forward. Now I'd like to put forth the point that if science is a study of mere physical objects in our proximity, then science by itself cannot offer us meaning. Only something which is transcendent, something which is totally transcendental, can offer us meaning. Only something which is totally transcendental, the divine, only that can offer us meaning. Yes, we may have projects in science which in a certain moment is a question we do not know and are yearning to answer. And for a brief moment, that is transcendental. But when we answer that question, it says, okay, now we know the answer. Not so exciting. You keep on searching for a new project, new question to answer. Only something which is totally transcendental can give us meaning. As a corollary of this, I always like to tell, especially for young people, is that similarly, science does not have its own intrinsic values. It needs to borrow its values and meaning from something outside its system. It doesn't have values of its own. And therefore it borrows it from whatever it has at the moment, uh, be it the contemporary ideology of the day, it borrows those values and peddles it for its own. Science does not have values of its own. Now, I'd like to put, uh, just to examine this a bit more, why do, we, why do we go about searching for meaning? That's a little more difficult question to ask. That's something going deeper and deeper into the human person. I like to put it this way, my way of looking at this is this. Um, there is a restlessness deep within each one of us. And this restlessness stems from the fact that we are unconsciously aware that we are living in exile. 
these are, it's a biblical term I'm using that we are living in exile. But we are unconsciously aware that we are living in exile. We live our lives as like a riddle. And in some ways we find ourselves partially separated from God, partially separated from each other, and sometimes even separated from ourselves. We experience love, we experience community, we experience peace, but never really in its fullness. And we yearn for that fullness. Now, when we look at the heavens and you look at the cosmos, you suddenly forget yourself for a brief moment and you kind of think that you are complete. The heavens have this intrinsic image because it's something far, distant, transcendental, a galaxy out there or a beautiful nebula that for a brief moment you look at it and you're like, wow, you are temporarily complete for a brief moment. You kind of temporarily removed from your exile. This happens to us all the time when we make big discoveries even. It doesn't have to be in astronomy. You make a big eureka moment in your life and you're like, wow, I suddenly feel a little more complete. Uh, my, uh, my supervisor, my boss at the Vatican Observatory would often say that he loves doing astronomy because it reminds him that life is not mundane and reminds him that there is something more important in life than what he has to eat today for breakfast or lunch. That's why he does astronomy. Astronomy gives him a sense of purpose, sense of something more than what is physical in his life and even for the beyond. So I'm kind of trying to explain to you in a very maybe philosophical term, try to make it very relatable, why we go about doing things in our life and what are we searching for this meaning. And the reason why I'm doing this is to unpack the story of the Magi. And I'd like to say that all what the Magi were looking for was searching for the transcendent. And they were also searching for meaning in life. That something was empty within their respective lives. And they went about searching to complete it. In many ways, our spiritual journeys are also a reflection of this. And in any ways, we who do professional sciences, the hard sciences, why we do these, take up bigger and more difficult projects as often for a search of meaning, trying to complete ourselves for a brief moment, then moving on to the next project. The Magi are a deepest reflection of ourselves, not only in our faith journeys, but also in our professional lives. I'd like to go back to the story of the Magi. And I'd like to ask the question, what did the, what did the Magi need to complete this journey? What, did, what kind of properties did they need? What gifts did they need? To, to go over what qualities do they need to go along that journey? What made them effective searchers after the truths? And why did we, we praise these three magi, not other searchers? Now, as it is related to us in the, in the Gospel of uh, Matthew, we know that the magi brought certain gifts. They brought uh, gold, frankincense, 
and myrrh. And people often relate the fact that maybe because they brought these gifts, they were really good, effective, so they came kind of prepared. Uh, I like to point out to you that I do not think that is correct. Um, I think they had some other properties which really made them effective searchers. And those properties which they had, which also help us make us effective in our search, but also if like to say for me, it makes me effective as a better scientist. Those three properties, as I will read to you, as faith, hope, and love. Bear with me for a moment as I try to unpack this. Why would you need faith, hope, and love in the sciences of all things? Isn't that our spiritual quality we talk about in our faith lives? Let's start off with, with first faith. Now, if you are a good practicing scientist, you would know that to do any research project, whether it be in astronomy or the biological sciences or the mathematical sciences, you have to make assumptions. You cannot start everything from scratch. Assumptions, you have to make reasonable assumptions. You can't prove everything. So you make your reasonable assumptions and based on your assumptions, you start your project and try and ask rational questions. So in some sense, we take these assumptions on a matter of faith. Furthermore, we also know that uh, we depend upon the research of those gone behind it, uh, before us. Uh, we depend on great scholars who have published great things in the field. We don't actually go and test everything they did and try and repeat all those experiments. We take them on reasonable faith. Oftentimes, we will doubt their experiments and we will try and repeat them and come up with a new analysis. But for most part, we need to have a bit of faith in our sciences to order to make progress. If we keep on repeating everything, we really won't go very far. Faith is an essential element of all science. And the more they reflect on this, they realize, yes, they have to make reasonable assumptions. But I'd like to take this even more deeper and take this to a deeper level. And when I study astronomy, I like to ask the question, why am I studying these physical laws? Why study them at all? What's, what, why do I want to know them? And what would happen if I study a physical law today and it changes tomorrow? And the laws change every day. Then what I studied yesterday is not valid for today. And what I study today will not be valid for tomorrow. And you say, this is nonsense because physical laws do not change. How do we know they do not change? We believe that they do not change. Where does that belief come from? That belief comes from the fact because we assume that God created the world good, that he created the world according to physical laws, and that he doesn't change his mind every day about those physical laws. And you look at, and you, you're, um, I'm sure you guys are looking at me and saying, what is he talking about? And to make this point even more clear, I'd like to point out, ask the pointed question, why did science then come about in pretty much the Western Hemisphere, which was a very Christian uh, culture, created by the amalgamation of a Hebrew concept of a God who created the world good and fixed, coupled with Greek rational thought. 
Why did it not happen elsewhere like the Chinese or the Egyptian cultures or the Indians? And the reason is because in most of these cultures, their assumptions about God was that he was often capricious. He would change these minds. Gods would change their minds constantly. The, if the emperor was God and today he taught one thing and tomorrow he taught another, the laws of nature would change. In most cultures, most of the other cultures, except in the Western, which is where Hebrew Greek thought, Science as we know it today, as studying physical laws, never occurred. They did observations. They, they observed things, but they never really asked the question, why does it happen? What makes it happen? Why do things take place? You can only do science if you assume that the laws of nature are fixed. You can only do science if you assume that God created the world good and worthy to be studied. Let's move to the next element of hope. I think this is the, this is the one element which every researcher relates to the most. Because in order to do research, you come up with various hypotheses. Um, and then you will say, I choose one hypothesis and I follow that through. And I have reasonable hope that the way this hypothesis which I take up is worthy of my time and will come to some success. I do not investigate the other possibilities because I have reasonable hope that the time and effort I put into this hypothesis will be successful. Every time I write an NSF grant or apply to the Hubble Space Telescope to observe something, I have reasonable hope that my experiment will be successful. And the NSF and the government and NASA has reasonable hope that I will be successful because they are giving me and awarding me this time and money. Every scientist relates with hope because that is the essence of our trade. We need hope to move forward to make progress. So that's really an easy thing. So without faith and hope, you really can't do much and good science. It's much more harder for me to sell the third concept, which is love. Why do you need love to do good science? And to, to explain this concept, I like to reflect on the nature of science and scientific progress. And the way often, uh, if you are not actually engaged in research, the, our concept of science is that it's like a, take up a science textbook. It's a bunch of facts which you learn and a bunch of formulas which you learn and you apply that to the physical world. But this is how, this is far from how science actually develops in nature. Science is not listing the facts. Science is really a conversation about the facts. Science is just not telling you the moon is round, it's so and so big size, it's that dense and it's circling around the earth. Rather, science asks the question, what is the moon made up of? Oh, it's made up of dense material. How did it form? What made it get there? Why is it in a certain orbit and why not a different orbit? Science is actually a conversation 
between partners about the physical world. It's a story scientists tell each other. And you actually converge to the truth by having a good conversation about facts, guided with rational thought. In fact, the best scientific questions are often, you come to the best scientific results by asking the best scientific questions. And questions are often in regard to, oh, that's strange. Oh, why does that happen? Why does that fit my data? Oh, let's, let's look at this deeper. In order to have good science, you need to have a diversity of opinions. I know this pretty well because, um, and I work at the University of Michigan, I work with a professor, his name is Eric Bell, he's very successful in his field, and the two of us get along fabulously with each other. We really love each other. We, we have the same ideas, we gel with each other, we sit down and start throwing ideas at each other, and it's, it's a great time, it's just fun working with him. And each of us pats ourselves on the back and he pats each other on the back, hey, you're great, I'm great, and it works. And we have these great ideas about the cosmos and galaxies, and we publish our papers. And then lo and behold, when we actually go for conferences, and then we are confronted by other scientists and what they think about it, and then we realize, oh hell, we went down a rabbit hole. We were like an echo chamber. Just talking among ourselves, and this doesn't correspond to reality. We actually make a bad team. We like each other, but we actually make a bad team. Science happens when you have a diversity of opinions. And today, in this physical sciences, we are becoming increasingly aware that in order for good science to happen, you have to have a diversity of voices. In, in the scientific uh, parlance, you, parlance, you talk about somebody who's the top of the field, who is like the boss, he's called, he or she is called the principal investigator. And he's in charge, he or she is in charge of all the researchers. Recently, uh, a bunch of us at the University of Michigan took upon ourselves as young, young researchers, what are the qualities you need to be a person at the top of your field to, in order to manage this big group of researchers. So we went about asking all these, what we call PIs, principal investigators. What makes, how do you manage that full team? How do you ask scientific questions? And what do you need? And one of the interesting ones which we heard and which we really loved, the responses from these PIs, was a researcher, she's a top professor in her field at the University of Washington. And she said, if you are the if you are the leader of a group, and if you have the choice of including in your, in your team two people, two scientists, and you have a choice between one or the other, and one of them is brilliant, is like the top of the field, really smart person, really comes fast to you know, innovative ideas and suggestions, but uh, really can't get along with people. And the other one is an average researcher, good, Average, you know, is good in the field, but really not the very best, but has these excellent social skills or can relate with it as a team member. And then the PI told us, always choose the one who has good social skills. Because in order for a team to work, 
you really need to relate to each other, to allow that diversity of opinions and not be the smart one and say, I know it all and you shut up and you do not know anything. In order for good science to happen, you need to have a safe space where you can have a diversity of opinions. Good science requires good community. And good community needs a loving atmosphere to develop. Without love in a very analogical sense, you really cannot have good science. And increasingly today with projects which we take up, which often involve groups of tens or twenty or even hundreds of scientists, because the projects we take up today are much larger than what we had in the past, science really depends on good relations and safe spaces where a diversity of opinions can take place. And there you have it. Faith, hope and love. Analogical to what we have in the spiritual life, but essential for research, for any quest for the transcendence. I like to put forth the idea that the greatest gifts the three magi were carrying with them were not the gold, frankincense and myrrh, but their faith, hope and love. And then to the, come to the end, we would like to talk about the real gem of the story of the three magi. And to understand this, the hidden gem in the story, uh, I'd like to ask the question. So the Magi, they actually set out on their search at the right point. They were looking for a star. They were looking for something special. They set out from the comfort of their home because they had a reasonable hope that they would find something. And then they found this child in a very dilapidated manger, you know, poor. Uh, and, you know, his two parents who really couldn't afford much and surrounded by animals. And uh, did that conform to their expectation? What did they really expect? And how did, what was the expression on their face when they actually found the child who was so perhaps contrary to what they expected? Um, I like to say that in certain sense, what they found was, was a total surprise to them was totally unheard in their expectation. They were, they were taken back by surprise. And I, the reason why I reflect on this is because in a certain sense, they were confront, God confronted them with a reality which was totally different from their expectations. As I reflect in my scientific research, um, I often think of the situations when I start off on a project and with reasonable hope. And I start off you know, researching and trying to understand and uh, possible solutions. And finally, the answer that I find is often so very different from what I started off with. It's even like the universe constantly is surprising me. And quite often when you say the universe doesn't actually fit to the models I am trying to fit to the universe. And I have these models in my head and I'm trying to show that these models work to, in order to make progress. And when I confront it with reality, 
reality always is different. Reality is the other. The universe never fits how we expect it to be. Similarly as the child Jesus was didn't fit to perhaps the expectations that the three magi um, came with. I know this painfully because um, in my PhD, in my, in my, in my research, uh, as I came to the University of Michigan after I finished my PhD, I realized that uh, one third of my PhD was wrong, totally wrong. And I only realized this after I came to the University of Michigan and had this diversity of opinions and people looked at my research and I myself looked at it and I'm like, oh, that doesn't make sense. And, then, and I'm deep, reflecting it on a bit deeper, I, knew, I know why I went wrong. I mean, I was under time pressure. I had to finish my PhD in within the three years. And my supervisor told me, in order to graduate, you really need to get this scientific result. And lo and behold, I wanted that scientific result. And I forced re my models, which I was trying to show, onto reality. And yet the universe does not cooperate. It always surprises us. In order for good science to take place, we really need to confront our expectations and our models with reality. And just as God often surprises us in our journeys, so also the universe always surprises us in reality. And all major discoveries and all big discoveries is always in the way that the universe doesn't behave in the way we expect it to be. And we say, why does that happen? That's strange. Why doesn't it follow a model? And we pursue a path and we realize some big discovery about the universe. In order for good science to happen, you need to have this element of surprise. Therefore, I'd like to end by saying that um, in order for good science to happen, reflecting on this, you really need two spiritual virtues. And these two spiritual virtues basically are, I like to call them, a poverty of heart and a chastity of heart. Why do you need a, what is a poverty of heart? By poverty of heart, I mean that the attitude to detach ourselves from our own previous experience and allow ourselves to really experience reality as it is to detach ourselves from our own previous expectations and listen to other people and listen to the universe as it talks to us and the story it's telling us. But quite often we come to the game with our, kind of like our hands and our hearts full, filled with our own ideas of how the universe should behave. Um, and we actually never listen to the other person and in some ways listen to the universe as it tries to tell us its story. In order to be a good scientist, you need to have a certain poverty of heart. Being able to be open, detach yourself from your own experiences, and listen to the universe. But I also think you need a chastity of heart. Um, what do I mean by chastity? We often refer to chastity as something specific to sex. But it's actually much more general. 
And the Christian concept of chastity centers on how we deal with others, with nature, and with God. To be chaste in the Christian sense of the term is often to be fully and properly respectful of the other person. To be chaste is to allow the other person to be as he or she is, not to short-circuit respect, not to rush the person, but to give the other person time and space. And you therefore understand how we short-circuit respect and we go against chastity when we have uh, a lack of respect, especially in our relationships, in ourselves. We rush people, we um, apply undue pressure for them to do things, we postulate an intimacy which we cannot really enter in. Chastity is all about respect of the other person. This is a Christian understanding of chastity, of giving the other person time. Now allow me for a brief moment to anthropomorphize reality. I've already been doing so in the course of the evening, I know this. But just think of the universe as the other person. In order for the other person to reveal his or her secrets and to allow them to give their gifts to you, you need to give them time and space to have the proper respect to listen to them, to wait patiently. If you try to rush the process, the person closes up and does not give you his or her gifts. Similarly, it also happens in the science. I related to you how I got part of my PhD wrong. In a certain essence, I hadn't have a certain chastity of heart. I rushed the process. We're not really listening to the data, to the universe, to what it was telling me, and imposed my own ideas on it. And how much of contemporary scientists are faced with uh, pressures to publish or perish, to race towards their academic prize, that they don't actually sit and listen to their data and to the universe and what it tells us. In a certain sense, the Magi who journeyed for months and months looking for the star and what it revealed to them had a certain poverty and chastity of heart. Um, they were able to let go of their experiences and the comforts of their home. And when they found the child, they were able to say, okay, let's learn from the child, let's bow down and pay him homage and let us learn from the child. They had a certain chastity of heart because they were patient with the process. They did not give up. They did not say at some point, let's go back to our comfort of our homes. Or say, oh, this process is too hard. Let's find something easy and say we have found it and take it back. They had a certain poverty and chastity of heart. If you need to be good in our professional careers and to be good in the science we do, perhaps even be good in the faith journeys, we need a certain poverty and chastity of heart. And then once we persist, when we find the child, we bow down and pay him homage. It may appear startling to all of you how I have trivialized a story of the Magi and trivialized scientific, great scientific careers into a tale uh, which incorporates 
so much of the scientific journey in the journey of the Magi and so much of our faith journey in the journey of the Magi. And you may be even appalled that I've reduced it all to spiritual values. But the reason why I'm telling and retelling this tale in this particular way is because it incorporates much of the experience I professionally and spiritually have as, we go, as I go about my research. And when I do tell this to my fellow scientists and my fellow researchers, they immediately get excited about it because they can relate to rushing things and not listening to their data. And they know the pitfalls in their own research and how they often stumbled and where they went wrong. And this methodological approach appeals and resonates with them much larger. And then they realize, yeah, I have assumptions, I have faith, I have hope. We really need a good atmosphere and love. And I need a certain poverty and chastity of heart. And what you are saying makes sense. In telling and retelling this tale in this particular way, and you can take the analogy further and further and further. You can start saying, oh, the Magi went back and then they need to you know, talk about their research and publicize it and reach the outreach. Or they knocked at Herod's door. They went on searching it. They knocked at every possible uh, door for an answer till they found what they wanted. You can see so many analogies to how we go about in our research. But I hope in telling and retelling this tale that it will help us in a very operative way, not only really in our heads, but deep down in our souls. There are so many similarities between good scientific research and how we go about our faith lives, our search for the transcendent, our search for the divine. And I hope each of us in his, in his or her own way can retell this tale from your own struggles as you search for the divine. Thank you. So we're going to have a chance to ask um, Father D'Souza uh, some questions. There's a mic to my right and to your left. I hope some of you have questions. Um, as you are thinking about that, and if you want to come up in a moment, let me make a few quick announcements. Um, first, our next event, the fourth of this season, it's in your uh, program, is uh, March 21st and features a woman named Tish Oxenrider, and that is how you spell her name. Uh, there's no vowels in her first name. Uh, she'll probably tell us about that when she's here, but she's a blogger, a world traveler, and it's going to be a wonderful talk. Um, I almost never talk about church events at the faith and life events, uh, it, very intentionally. The point here isn't to get people to, to come to St. Philip or to come to our events. However, later in February and early March, uh, I'm going to be leading a three-week course on faith and science. Um, and we'll talk about a lot of the things that uh, Father D'Souza spoke about tonight. Uh, you can learn more about that on our website, uh, spdlc.org news, I think is one of the places you can find it. Um, and I will say, I am deeply convinced that the talk about paradigms and narratives uh, are profoundly important to people of faith. And I think that as Christians, we get those paradigms and narratives wrong regularly. And we, as a result, are very defensive 
about our Christian faith when we do not need to be. And so we'll sort of un unpack some of that. Again, uh, it's uh, February 26th, March 5th, and March 12th, Tuesday nights, three Tuesday nights in a row. Uh, if you would like uh, us to set, sorry? Was there a question? Oh, seven o'clock in the evening. If, uh, um, if you would like us to send you information about upcoming events, you can subscribe to our email list or like us on Facebook, and we will uh, forward information about that to you. Um, also, uh, Matt Kelleher from Subtext Books was in St. Paul, by the way, was gracious enough to drive all the way over here to the western suburbs of Minneapolis to sell a book. It's not by uh, Father D'Souza, but it is by his boss, a guy named Guy Consolmagno. He actually had a piece in the Wall Street Journal around Christmas about the Star of Bethlehem, as a matter of fact. This is a book called Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? The subtitle is <clears throat> and other questions from the astronomer's inbox at the Vatican Observatory. So the book is based on actual questions that the people at the Vatican Observatory get regularly, and they just responded to them in book form. So this book is available for sale outside uh, after um, the talk, and even though he didn't write it, I think he'd be happy to sign it for you if you'd like him to do that. Um, and as always, I do like to say, uh, very importantly, uh, last but not least, by any means, uh, in our program tonight are listed the many individuals and uh, companies and organizations who, from the beginning, have made this uh, series possible. It is not a church budget item. Uh, it's supported entirely uh, through the generosity of, of the folks who are listed in the program. Uh, and without them, it would not be possible for us to bring people like Father D'Souza here tonight. So some of them, uh, fewer than maybe some nights, but some of them are here tonight. Will you join me in saying thank you to them? Okay, if we'll take a few minutes for questions if people have them. Uh, again, mics at the right and left, if you could speak into them so that our other audience members and folks listening on the stream can hear. Hi. Uh, bringing a question from my father, who uh, wasn't able to be here tonight because of the bad roads between uh, here and Rochester. But hopefully he's watching online. Dave, uh, just a second, Dave. I've got to turn the mics on. Sorry. It's my bad. Okay, let's try again. Okay, so my dad's question. Uh, he was an astronomer at the University of Michigan. And, oh, uh, God. <laughs> it was his first full-time job. Okay. And, uh, he was part of the radio observatory there, which was a joint undertaking between the Department of Astronomy and the Department of Electrical Engineering, and they built a radio astronomy observatory in 1956. It was a 85-foot dish. Mm -hmm. I've seen the dish. Oh, you've seen the dish. I okay. have seen the dish. So growing up in Ann Arbor, I had the enviable position as his son of when people asked me in the 1960s, what does your dad do? I got to say, he listens to the sky. <laughs> Anyway, uh, in the 60s, he would go to conferences and seminars across the country, and there would be astronomers from around the world, and they were predominantly atheists. Mm -hmm. And I guess to change the question a little bit, is the narrative so strong and the paradigm so strong that it's still that way, that most astronomers are atheists? Oh. And then the other thing he wanted to know was, at that time, uh, there wasn't an, an appreciation for diversity of opinion, mm -hmm. and 
people who weren't atheists were openly criticized for their views, and he wondered if it was still that way in the community as well. Okay. Um, so I do not think, uh, so I do not know how it was a few years ago, at least at the time of your father. What I can say is what I, my own experience of it now. Um, I don't think the majority of scientists are atheists. In fact, if I would classify them, I would classify them as agnostic. Um, people who do not really want to commit, they really do not know, but they're not active deniers of the faiths. Uh, but in my conversations with them, uh, they, they do know that I am a, sometimes they do know, get to know that I am a Catholic priest or that I am a person of faith. And very often conversation starts developing about existential questions or deeper questions of meaning, which they all relate to. And I begin to wonder, about 70 to 80% of them um, are people who are actually leading spiritual lives, searching for meaning, but do not want to commit to an exact faith tradition. Um, I also have to say that it depends a lot upon uh, geography. Uh, people in Europe tend to be more agnostic than people here in the United States, and that's a cultural element too. There is a culture, and people in India tend to be quite religious for a similar cultural element. I hope that answers the first question. The second question is about um, the diversity of voices. I think, uh, at least in your father's time, there was very little diversity, and the diversity was not tolerated. Today, most astronomy departments that I know about are increasingly setting this thing as a very criterion for even hiring new faculty that they have to have a diversity statement, that they should have, have a certain amount of, certain fraction of people who are women, uh, of people from smaller minorities. They actively are searching uh, uh, for, for diverse opinions. There's often the, there's still the people who hold on to their views. They do not go away that fast, uh, but they are becoming a smaller and smaller minority. I'm not certain I know all the facts, but my understanding is when the universe was created, all of the elements that are present today were created at that time. I do not think so. Okay. Uh, they're not the facts. <laughs> but that's not the story we tell ourselves today. <laughs> Then I'll continue. Okay. Uh, human life as we know it is built on a relatively precise quantity and type of element. Yes. Uh, you mentioned that God changes the rules. Uh, I think he doesn't change the rules. Oh, he doesn't. He doesn't change the rules. In your mind, have you reconciled, when we look at our life, Yeah. Uh, all the things that occur, yeah. what occur by God ah. and what occur by nature, mm -hmm. just, just through the sequence of, of growth and life. Um, so let me uh, maybe unpack that question a bit. First of all, 
um, what we can do today is we, we seek to understand life as we know it. We try to elements life as, try to understand life as we know it. We know that the human being consists of certain elements. We also know from some of our observations that some of those elements did not exist right at the very beginning of the universe, but were created um, in in stars as they died. So in many ways, we are stardust. Uh, created for human life to occur, stars need to be born, stars need to die, create elements and that then is essential for the human person to have the composition which we have today. Uh, so we are stardust, if that's a nice uh, quiffy. Um, but w what you are relating, you are also relating to an idea about uh, trying to hint to something as, as um, in this a framework which is evolutionary in some sense, a sort of progress within, uh, within nature and within civilization. Um, one does not have to look at it as something being changed or the physical laws of nature changing. One can start off with a set physical laws created by God and these physical laws then interact in complex ways uh, by God's great infinite design um, to create the world as we know it today. Uh, I think it is unhelpful uh, personally and spiritually to actually try and separate, oh, this is created, this is caused by God and this is caused by nature because God created nature and if God created nature, then God created everything and builds it in his in his, in his own way. We may have difficulty in understanding God's will and God's plan for us, but that is a, a human way of going about in trying to make sense and make meaning of the world, including sometimes the sufferings we undergo and uh, some of the pain we achieve, we also go through in life. It's a human way of constructing uh, and perhaps even creating meaning and even separating us from intense pain by giving us a rational, emotional reason to understand why we go through this pain. Uh, in a broader scheme of things, everything comes from God. Physical laws and also how they play out in our lives, including random events which have all been planned in, in God's eyes. Uh, planned, in quotation marks as I would like to say. Uh, but in a, in a very, in a very we, make, we struggle to make meaning of the world uh, through physical laws as we, as we construct them. But, they're also the, uh, but in a sense, God created the world and that is the essence of the theological truth which we, uh, which we believe in. Yeah? I hope I've answered your question reasonably. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, you talk about the narrative and the paradigm and how entrenched it is, and Stephen Hawking comes out in his final book and he says there's no possibility of a God. Mm -hmm. in, in our everyday life, how can we handle that objection from people? How can we have that discussion with people about what he said, yeah. which further strengthens that paradigm? How would you do that? Uh, which, uh, so that just not to, not to strengthen his paradigm? And no, 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 but to yeah. refute it. To refute it, yeah. yeah. 
Um, I think um, you, it is important to understand why he says what he says. Uh, he is a prof- he is a prof- he was a professor. He recently passed away. Uh, he was a professed atheistic atheist. He did not want to believe in God, and uh, this idea which he had influenced the way he even thought about his science. So it's an ideology which even influences his science. To give you a very concrete example, uh, while all, um, while all of um, the most scientists, as most scientists, believe in the Big Bang, right? Uh, and the Big Bang has a very evolutionary approach. It comes from a single point, and therefore is a single time in the world was created, and the world was cre- and then the world progressed. Uh, Stephen Hawking belonged to that group of um, atheists who did not want a singularity at the beginning, and did not want a single creation point, and tried through all methods. Uh, through his mathematics, which he did, which he was excelled in, um, to try and show that the Big Bang actually never really happened as we know it today, that there was never a singularity, and that you could skirt through the singularity through some complex mathematical equations. Um, The number of very very, uh, famous scientists and atheists who tried in their own ways uh, to stop having creation having a starting point. Another one of them is Fred Hoyle, who lived in Cambridge in, um, in, the, in, the, in the early 60s and 70s, and uh, he said Big Bang did not happen. You have what is called the steady state universe. The universe always existed like it was and never was really created, and if you don't have a creation point, you don't need a creator. It's amazing to understand how our underlying assumptions influence the science we do. Uh, I will leave it at that uh, as a a starting point for discussion with your fellow colleagues. Oh, is there one more? Okay, we'll we'll do one more. I didn't realize. I think I spoke over time. Sorry. (laughs) Um, We've, I think, in the last ten, twenty years, we've discovered. 2000s, one to 2000 solar systems and not a single one is like ours with the gas giants beyond the place where they couldn't possibly have formed. Seems to, uh, can you uh, have anything to say about that? Oh, okay. Uh, so, um, well, we have long known that there are many planets in our solar system. We never really knew that there were planets around other stars. And in last, uh, 20, in last 10 years, this field has made an amazing leap that we have actually begun to discover planets around other stars. So these are called, these are called as extrasolar planets, um, just to give people background. Now, most of the planets which we discover, they are very far away. These are very stars which are very, very far away. Uh, it's very difficult to uh, study their planets. So the biggest ones you discover uh, are the ones which are the biggest planets, like our Jupiter, which is also very huge. You don't see the smaller ones. So we had a sort of bias in our discovery. We discovered a whole bunch of, uh, of hot Jupiters, as they are called, because the, we see the biggest planets and the smaller ones are too faint. But now, increasingly, with better techniques, we have actually discovered a whole bunch of other types of planets, smaller ones, 
including ones which look very much like the Earth's. Similar size and at a similar distance from their star. In the and that opens us to the possibility that these planets could be hosting some sort of life and that's really, really very exciting. I mean, it's one of the fundamental questions which drives astronomy. Are we alone? Is there life out there? And by the discovery of these planets, uh, we, which can host, possibly host life, can possibly host life, it opens up to new possibilities and new questions. But one of the other things which we also discovered was that we had built a model of how planets form based on our solar system. We saw where Jupiter was, we know where the Earth is, and we know where Pluto is, although it is not a planet, <laughs> no longer. But we thought that all planets form in this way. And as we, dis as we are discovering planets around other stars, we are realizing that our old models don't fit the universe. That we really need to update how planets form and we, nearly need, we need to get rid of the old ideas we have about how planets form. And then this makes us to question the assumptions we do and this is a very active phase of research at the moment. So that's all my knowledge is. I study galaxies, I don't study planets. But listening to my colleagues, this is the answers they tell me at this particular time. So it's a very exciting field of research. We have more questions than answers. Okay, be, no, don't wait, just, just wait. <laughs> you can applaud wildly in a moment. Thank you again for coming. Thanks, by the way, to Jeff Elstead for his music. I failed to say thank you to him earlier. Um, thanks to all of you for coming out on a snowy night. Uh, thanks to anyone with us still by live stream. And especially, uh, Richard, we thank you so much for being with us. And as a small token of our gratitude, we'd like to give you a little plaque that says, with thanks to Richard D'Souza for bringing faith to life. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.